Go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 13. We're going to end the three-part series within a series on the end times. It was a, a delight to study these passages because, again, just seeing the words of Christ, the red letters in your Bible, just to see exactly what Jesus said. There's a lot of opinions out there, right? I mean, there's a ton of opinions on who the Antichrist is. There's a ton of opinions on when the, the earth is actually going to end, the exact time and date. Um, Jesus has told us to disregard those things, to disregard man's opinion, but to look at the word of God and to know that there is a, a coming end, right? There, we're, there is going to be an end to this, wor- to this world, to this earth. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. Jesus is going to come back and he shows us exactly how he's going to come back. He leaves no mystery to that part. Now, we don't know the time and the season as far as the exact date of when Christ is going to return, but we know he's coming. And he told his disciples, he said that after the, the destruction of Jerusalem, you'll see that the temple will be destroyed in 70 AD. But there's more to come. That is only the birth pains. There's only the, 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 it's, it's only a forerunner, uh, so to speak, of what is to come. There's going to be massive earthquakes, famines. There's going to be false teachers, rumors of wars. There's going to be wars. There's going to be mass persecution, government, religious persecution, and then also familial persecution. Within the family, fathers will turn against sons. Mothers will turn against daughters. And, and, and vice versa. It's going to happen. We're going to see a great apostasy at the end. We talked about that the last two weeks. But Jesus is concluding his message and he's showing exactly how he's going to return to earth. And he, and he makes it very clear. And then he gives us an exhortation at the end and how we are to live in these days. So today is going to be very practical as we end. But we have a few more things about what, uh, what is going to be coming in the future. And then... Uh, giving us uh, a few practicals at the end to teach us how to live and how to watch and how to be alert in these last days. So why don't we go ahead and turn to chapter 13, starting in verse 24. We'll read all the way to 37, and then we'll end there. So it says, In those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. It's not going to be a fun time. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with a great power and glory, and he will send forth the angels, and he will gather together his elect, his chosen ones, might say in your translation, the Christians, from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. He will gather all of them and not miss one. Now learn learn from the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves and you'll know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation, and when you say truly, it's, me, it's an emphatic. It just means it's a done deal. This generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, Jesus himself, but the Father alone. And then in verse 33, the practicals, take heed, keep on alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey, 
who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on alert. Therefore be on alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows are in the morning, and in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I will say to all, be on alert. Be on alert. The return of Christ should be on the mind of every Christian. As I rattle off a few scriptures, you could see throughout the pages of the New Testament, we, people eagerly waited for his return. They couldn't wait. They, it was almost like they, in a sense, got giddy. Every morning they went up there and said, well, is Jesus going to arrive today? I want to be with Christ. That is the safest place to be. That is the most comforting place to be. That is the most joyful place to be. That there will be without sin. There will be a without crime. You'll never hear a police siren ever again. You'll never have a, a, to worry about a, a loved one dying. You never have to worry about contracting some disease. You never have to worry about wearing a mask. Because they will be perfect in heaven. And G, where Jesus is, what makes heaven is because Jesus is there. It's not some like thought up, uh, you know, fantasy land where I get to do whatever I want. No, it's where Christ is. That's where heaven is because there's safety. There's where God is. There's where, where relationship is. That's why he ultimately created man in the garden who then messed it up. It says in Titus 2, 12 to 13, look, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ. There, there, there's an anticipation in the heart of Paul. Paul, it says also in 2 Timothy 4, 8, in no particular order, in the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness to all who have loved his appearing. They loved his appearing. It's almost as if, you know, sometimes because it, it, it's so good, you know, the paycheck's coming in, everything's good. We're like, you know what? Hey, Jesus, just hold off, you know? And then when things get bad, it's like, Jesus, come home. Take me home. Come you know, and, and, and we're, we're to anticipate his coming all the time because it's, it just is maybe the, the, the greatest day on earth here uh, pales in comparison is like maybe even the worst day in heaven, which there is no bad days, right? First Corinthians 1, 7 says, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's an eagerness. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, wait for the son from heaven, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. We're gonna, he's gonna rescue us from, from, from total destruction, the wrath of God. I can't even imagine every day the lost one is heaping up, every day, the wrath of God. Every single minute, he's reaping up, he's, 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 racking up more wrath that is gonna come. It's almost like the, 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 the bow is being stretched and being stretched There's more tension, more tension, more tension as the person lives. And on the last day, he flings it and hits white square in the heart. And we're gonna be rescued from that. We're gonna be rescued from the wrath to come. And we eagerly wait for that. Second Corinthians 5, 8, we prefer to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. You can also see 1 Corinthians 15 and what happens, you know, in those last days. In the twinkling of an eye, we're going to be transformed. We're going to be glorified. We'll have new bodies. We'll have new ways of, new way of thinking. 
You know, it, it is said that when, when Paul said that the, the, when we gave us the Holy Spirit, when we got saved, he gave us a down payment. I was just describing that. I was trying to, in the best way, describe that to my, for my youngest two as we're reading devotions. And that the Holy Spirit's like a down payment. It's as if, you know, dad goes to the store and he goes and he picks out a bike that, you know, that the, the child likes. And then he, he puts down a down payment. He says, look, I'm going to pay I'm going to pay $500 for this $1,000 bike. It's a nice one. <laughs> it flies. Uh, and, and, and so, it's, it, you know, we, we put down $500. It's guaranteed. I, they, they were, they're sitting there waiting. They're thinking, Dad just put $500 down. He's, he, he's, gonna, he's guaranteeing that we're going to have this bike. And he's going to put down the other $500 next week. And when the Holy Spirit enters into you, what ultimately God is saying is, if you sense the Holy Spirit into you, you will be in heaven when you die. But if you do not experience the Holy Spirit, then you have no guarantee of heaven. And it's, it is really important today that you think about that. Do you have the evidence of the Holy Spirit residing in you? Is there less sin now than there was when you supposedly gave your life to Christ? Is there more of a love for Christ? Is there, is there a desire to know him more? Is there a desire to be with him? Is there a longing for his return? I could guarantee you that I, I, I know that when I first got saved at 18, I did not wish for Christ's return. I was 18. I was like, the world's before me. This is, I mean, my whole life's before me. I wasn't thinking about Christ's return. I mean, I read the passages just like you do. It's the same Bible that I had at 18 as I have at 41. It's the same Bible. Same passages, but I think differently now. I want Christ to return. I cannot wait. As I look at the news articles, as the, the, the headline news, I'm like, Lord, return now. The atrocities, the, 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 the murders that you see, the, the, the evil that you see reigning. Forget even the politics, even in America, that's so disturbing. We want Christ to return. We don't want to get so comfortable here that we miss these passages. Because it was normal for the New Testament first century believers to say, please, Lord, come back. I mean, they're the ones that are witnessing miracles, signs and wonders more than we do today, right? I mean, it could have been like, hey, let's just do this forever here. This is awesome. This is heaven on earth. Now listen to Bill Johnson, the, the, the pastor of Bethel. He says this, we don't need the return of Christ. All we need is revival. This is absurd, this is a fool talking from the pulpit because God desires for us to want Christ to return, not heaven on earth. We are to pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is being done perfectly in heaven with the saints that are there, uh, with, with the angels. They're doing his bidding perfectly, his will perfectly. We do not do that perfectly here on earth, Right? I know I don't. I don't know if you do. But none of us do. None of us live this life perfectly. But we desire that Christ would return. Yes, we desire for further sanctification here. We desire to become more like Christ. But there's still something always in the believer that says, please, Lord Jesus, come quickly. That's how the Bible ends. That's what John said in about 100 A.D., so what do we do in these last days? Do we store bullets and beans? 
I mean, do we just, just have a, you know, a one room in our house where we're just storing up as, you know, sky-high bullets and, and all of our beans, you know, and all of our, you know, crackers that last 25 years that you can buy on YouTube? You know, you have the little ad. It's like, you'll survive to the end time, through the end times with these, you know, wafer, whatever they are, the cracker things that, that supposedly are, you know, vacuum sealed and, and last. Uh, mine, unfortunately, expired. <laughs> My... I got it as a gift. <laughs> it, was a, it was a bucket that you could use as a toilet, and, uh, and it's got a bunch of, bunch of other stuff in there that, you know, for just in case the world were, at, were to end. But the, the crazy thing is, is how long are you going to actually survive with that bucket anyways? I mean, I don't want to be like, you know, the Will Smith movie. I don't want to be the last guy standing. I'm like, all right, well, I'm here now. You know, nobody else survived. I got like 10 cans of beans left. I mean, what am I supposed to do? I mean, how stupid is this? So I don't think we're supposed to store beans and bullets in abandoned ship and just as like, you know, just do like what they, what they did in Second Thessalonians. They just figured, hey, you know, Christ is coming. So what the heck, right? I mean, let's just eat, drink, and be merry and not work. And, you know, Christ is coming back, abandon ship and, and not do what God's called us to do. And we'll get to that towards the end. No, we're not supposed to do that. Here's, let's, let's move back to verse 24 and, and there are three aspects of Christ's return. These, this is exactly how Christ said he's going to come back. So there's the order, there's the backdrop, and there's the manner, if you're taking notes. So this is point one. We're to study Christ's return. We're to study Christ's return. We're to look at exactly how Jesus is going to come back, because he points that out very clearly. If you study Christ's return, there's three aspects to that. There's the order, there's the backdrop, the scene, uh, and then there's the manner in which he comes. So the first one we saw last week, after the abomination of desolation, after the Antichrist desolates the temple, and there's mass chaos and persecution, Christ is coming. We know that. And he's coming soon. The backdrop, he's coming in total darkness. It says the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give light, the stars will be falling from heaven. It's crazy. The earth will shake. And and it says here that in Zechariah 14, 6 and 7, this is Old Testament talking here, prophesying that in that day there will be no light, right? That the, the luminaries will, will dwindle, a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. So Jesus will come in that environment. Isaiah 13, this is 700 years prior to Christ. Isaiah 13, 9 through 13, I won't read the whole thing, but it says, behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land of desolation and he will exterminate its sinners from it for the stars of heaven and their constellations will, will not flash forth their light. The, dark, the sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. That's terrifying. Especially to, to, even so to not have Christ as your savior. Joel 2, 10 to 11, the earth shakes or the earthquakes the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The day of the Lord is, is indeed great and very awesome. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, Joel 2 is partially fulfilled at the time of Pentecost, if you remember that. But it's this piece, the charismatics will say, hey, we need to dream, we need visions and dreams and prophesy and all these kinds of things, but we don't, we don't think of the last part of that that the, the, the moon and the sun and, and the darkness, and that didn't happen at Christ's first coming. That didn't happen the day of Pentecost. This is future. This is going to happen. 
these things will happen. Whether we are alive or not, these things will happen prior to Christ's return. So that's the backdrop, the manner in which he comes. He'll come with, from the heavens, it says, remember in Acts 1, where they saw him ascend, and the the angel said that he's going to come back the same way. He ascended to heaven. He's going to come back the same way. He's going to come back with his angels. He's going to come back to gather his elect, and he will judge the lost. Jesus came in his first coming as what? A lamb. And what is he coming back in the second coming? A lion. You don't want to mess with him. You don't want to come back and be on his bad side. You want to make sure that you're saved. You want to make sure that you know him. I mean, just thinking, I, as I was listening to a message on thinking about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and how God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, how he just torched that city but he was gracious to save 10. He was gracious to save those who had a heart for God. He was gracious to save them. And then to remember, to remember Lot, and to remember Lot's wife and how she turned back and to remember then Christ. It's a wonderful message. It's just to think through again just the, the scene in the end times, the scene of the, like the, it would be almost just like the 9-11, the billowing smoke, the, 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 the fires, the, the, the mass chaos, the, the, the deaths that will happen during this time, a very, very dark, a very uh, scary and fearful. And do you want to uh, be fearful at Christ's return or do you want to be wonderfully joyous at Christ's return? And the choice is yours. And he gives everybody that option to turn to him so that you can be joyfully awaiting his return. The manner in which he comes, he comes back. It says that, uh, that he comes with his angels. It says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 to 10, to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Exactly what I said. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. So those who do not believe in hell, that is, ex- that is a perfect passage to take people to and say, oh, well, this is annihilation. We're just gonna cease to exist. No, there's eternal destruction. What does that mean? You're gonna be det- eternally destroyed over and over and over again. It's like a, a bad nightmare that never ends. It's to die and die again. That's what he's saying. Eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord, knowing that people will be in heaven will be torturous enough that you're not there. Talk about FOMO, fear of missing out. You'll have that for eternity. To always feel like I'm missing out on something great, especially those who know scripture, especially those who know how glorious heaven will be but yet reject it. And he says, so that he says that uh, away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his power, when he comes to be glorified in the saints on that day. And then Revelation 1, 7, behold, he's coming with, with the clouds and every eye will see him and even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it'll be in his right hand, he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the shining sun shining in its strength. And then Daniel 7, 13 and 14, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, the, with the clouds of heaven, one like the son of man was coming. He came up from the ancient of days from God's presence and was presented before him. 
And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and that all people's nations and men of every language might serve him and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. Amen? That's how he's coming back. So you better be ready, baby. He's coming. It's important to know that. And there's more scriptures that I can read. If you'd like to read more, I'll give you some for homework. Revelation 19, you can read that, and Revelation 20. And if you're curious how it ends, just go all the way to 22. The second part here, not only we need to study Christ's return, but we need to trust Christ's return. Like, watch the, the, the parable. He's given already a, a parable before about an illustration before about the fig tree. This one's a little different. He says, notice the signs. A pretty simple illustration, right? He's saying, notice the signs. Don't be ignorant. When the branch puts forth leaves, summer's coming. When you see all these things happening, the end is near. I'm gonna come very quickly. When you see these things coming in an increasing manner, like we talked about over the last couple weeks, know that he's coming. Don't be ignorant of the signs. Remember when he talked to the Pharisees? He said, you don't even know the signs. I mean, you want another sign? I mean, I've given you so many signs. I've given you the book of Jonah. That's enough of a sign. You're you're, you're better, you're you're like the meteorologist, right? I mean, you, you should, you know, you know about how the weather changes. How do you not know when the end's coming? How do you not know that God is standing right before you? They were blind. And guess what? There's gonna be so many more blind among us in the last days. So many more. Just know that this world is temporary. His word is infallible. He says that although the world will pass away, he says, my word will never pass away. What I say, it will happen. There's gonna be, listen to this, in 2 Peter 3, 3 to 4 says, there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust saying, Where's the promise of his coming? They're going to say that. I mean, they said that then, they're going to say that now. I mean, you're going to see all the signs. It's going to be one of those like, how do you not see the truth? It's going to be like, you know, the whole transgender stuff? You're like, how do you not understand? I mean, like I just, you know, I had to buy some airline tickets the other day and it's like, it's, there, there's it's male, female, and now it's like other. What? The, the, the guy that p- makes the website should go back to school again. It's like, hello, buddy. There's only male and female. Bada bing. That's it. That's all there is. There's no other 500 different types here, okay? This is easy. This is like grade school stuff. But you with the PhD working on the company don't understand that. And it's going to be like that. It's like, what in the world? How do you not see that Christ is going to come back? How do you not see that all these signs point? Because they're blind. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the, the God of this world, the small g God of this world has blinded people from the glory of God. And that will happen again. And in a more increasing rate. You're gonna be like scratching your head like what in the world? How do you not see this? We're gonna be the... the the most minority class is ever the earth has ever seen. We're going to be the, 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 the minorities. We're going to be su- such a small group in the end. My, I believe for revivals, because I say this intention, I believe that there's a great revival 
that could happen in this city, that could happen around the world. And I do believe that. I hold that absolutely 100% in my heart. I think we should plant more churches. I was thinking about it the other day. I think we should plant a church in Philadelphia, San Francisco. We need hubs on the coast. We got one for Latin America. We got one in Asia. We got one for Europe. I suppose we could have one in Montana for Canada. Some of you cowboys would love that. But you know, the, the reality is we, we need to plant more churches. We do need to plant more churches. And some of you guys are gonna plant them. I believe it. I believe even I, as I say that, it's like, man, let me, let me be that one to go on a team somewhere else in the world. We gotta keep moving. But at the same time, I understand that we're going to be a minority. Revival to me doesn't mean the, 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 we are gonna see everybody come to Christ. So we could have like some sort of utopia until Christ comes back. Are you kidding? We would never want Christ to come back if it was perfect like that. And that's why the charismatic fools say that all the time. They're like, heaven on earth, heaven on earth, heaven on earth, heaven on earth. And they blind you. They blind the church in seeing the beauty of Christ's return. To see that, was, that it costs you and me to be a believer in this world and to suffer, and to believe that we have a Savior that's gonna come back and get us. What does this, this Christianity cost you? Let me ask you, what has it cost you in these days? Because if you keep going throughout your life and it costs you nothing, I would be very concerned whether or not you're born again. If you never experience anything related to Christ's persecution specifically. I'm not talking about a death of a loved one. That happens. I mean, is it Christian standing here and a non-Christian standing over here? We live, the, we live in the same earth. We have same jo- potential of job loss, cancer, loss of everything, loss of a house, natural disasters. The only difference is the non-Christian does not receive grace to go through it and the Christian receives grace to go through it. We receive this grace, but the reality is Christians are gonna go and be persecuted above and beyond the, the, the rest of the population. And the question is for you, are you being persecuted? Are you, do you, are you going through, can you connect your trial to the fact that you are a Christian, not a sinner on this earth? There's a difference. And you should need to think about that. I got a little ahead of myself. <laughs> That's okay. We'll just move on. But it will, the, the elements, uh, you can read that, Second Peter, this whole world is gonna be destroyed. I've said it before, whether you recycle or not, the world's gonna be destroyed. God's gonna destroy this earth, not man. Just FYI for all the people who are into the green stuff. The reality is man will not let, let me share this. Actually, you know what? I'm going to read this because I think some of us may not understand this. Second Peter 3.10 says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the heavens and will pass away with a roar and the elements, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. This is not throwing a wrapper in the wrong bin. It is elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. There you have it. Now, does that mean we're not to be good stewards? 
We need to be good stewards. We, we, part of glorifying God is putting the wrapper in the right bin. <laughs> okay? Do I do that all the time? No. Especially in Seattle, I get confused. I'm like, what in the world here? It's like a, this, is like a game sh- this is like a game, you know? Like, with all the pictures, I'm like, this wrapper, I remember being there, I'm like, does not match any of these 19 baskets. And it's like, I don't know which one. So it's like, I'm just gonna put it in my pocket. <laughs> it's like, my, with like pickles hanging out of it. Because <laughs> I don't know where to throw it. And I don't want to be arrested. So there you have it. So you understand that God is going to destroy this earth. God will do that. Whether it, it, Man will not do that. And that is key. And we need to be ready for that. We need to be ready for his return. And he's going to set up, thank, thank you, Lord, for that. You're going to set up a new heavens and a new earth. And it's going to be perfect and will never be destroyed ever again. And we'll be enjoying his earth. I don't know if like Japan is going to look exactly the same. I mean, probably the buildings won't and pagodas and all those kinds of things. I don't know, you know, but we'll be able to see an earth that has mountains, that has, that has a beautiful creation that God created. We are going to be able to enjoy that to the max for all of eternity. It's going to be wonderful. And we want him to come back and we want him to destroy the earth and make a new one. That should be every desire. And, and at the same time, want to see revival on this earth and have the heart of God in that we don't want anyone to perish. We want God to be patient for our brother, for our sister, for our mom, for our grandparent, for our coworker. And God help us for ourselves if we're not saved. So what are the practicals? So number three, be ready for Christ's return. Study, trust, be ready for Christ's return. Here are the practicals. There's two of them. Be watchful. Be watchful. What does this mean? He gives it, again, a little story that illustrates. It is like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on alert. He's saying, look, this household is the church. This household is the church. And the master is the head of it. He's the head of the church. And you are the workers. We're the watchmen. We're the, door, we're the doormen. We're the, we're the workers in the church. And we are need to be ready for his return. And we have many responsibilities, don't we? Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, which I'll not read. You can read it again for homework. We have some homework to do. So when you read that, you see that we have responsibilities, don't we? Some are called to be teachers. We need to teach. Some are called to be administrators. Some are called to be helpers. Some are called to be evangelists. We all have a gift. In 1 Corinthians 12, we all have a gift to do. You, are you fulfilling that gift? Do you even, but let me just ask you this. Do you even have a desire to find out what your gift is? Let alone use it. You want to discover that gift. Ask you know, it, as you're walking with people, saying people should call out, wow, you know what? You have a gift in that. You, you know, I'm really blessed by you. You can write. You can sing. You can play music. You can talk. You make sense when you talk. I understand you when you talk. You can give vision. You can disciple really well. You have a wonderful way of being hospitable and drawing people into the household and teaching them the things of God. You have the gift of giving. 
You're incredibly generous. Gift of serving. And Romans says if you do, do it, right? If you serve, serve. If you give, give. If you lead, lead. And we are going to be responsible. That. He says, 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, let us not be asleep as others do, but let us be alert. Let us be sober. Let us be, pay attention. Let us not be apathetic or indifferent. That is a scary thing to spend two or three days in, in, in a, a state of indifference. Because you know what? There, there's, a, there's a genuine Christian that starts off on the line right here. They start off on the same line as somebody, somebody who's going to commit apostasy. We take one or two steps in, in, in apathy. They take one or two steps in apathy. The only difference is by the grace of God and the grace of the Holy Spirit, he will gra- grab us right out of that apathy and bring us back into passion, bring us back in line, and that one will go astray forever. First John 2 says that, doesn't it? They, were, they, they left because they were never of us. And that will happen in the last days. So we need to be alert. Does that mean you're going to, are you to, to worry about losing your salvation? No, of course not. But I would be concerned if you have an apathetic spirit right now. I'd be concerned if you don't care about the lost. I'd be concerned if you don't care about your holiness. I'd be concerned if you don't love people well. I'd be concerned if, 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 you're, if you're greedy or you're, you're just playing around with lust. I'd be concerned if you, if you just don't care about those things. You become numb. Because that, you can't see the difference. You're both the, apath- the, 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 the apathetic Christian in the moment and the one who's going to commit apostasy are walking in the same direction. And you need to pause and say, Lord, get me out of this. Make me alert for your coming. I don't want to be swept away in the downstream of this world. Wesley said this, here are the, here are the things I would do tomorrow if I knew that Christ was ter- returning then, what uh, he, it, it, Edward says, stamp eternity on my eyes. Says, stamp eternity on my heart. I want, I want to, I have 70 resolves at 18 years old. He said, Lord, may I not be committing sin when you return. These are the things I don't want to do when you return. I want to make sure I never do these things when you return. I do not want to be ashamed at your coming. He was serious about his faith. And then you have Whitfield, right? You have have 15 questions he would ask before bedtime. I'll read some of them. Eventually, I'll probably read all of them. But let me just start with the first. Have I been fervent? Have I had a warm feeling in private prayer? Not just have I prayed, but have have I sensed fellowship with him? Did it matter? Was it meaningful prayer? And then he says, if I use stated hours, you know, the hours of his time, he woke up, he went to bed at 10, he woke up at four. He exhausted himself. Most college students wake up at 10 and, and they go to bed at midnight, right? But look, I, at, at the same time, we, we, we don't need to like be like Whitney and wake up, field and wake up at four o'clock. That's, I, I don't wake up at four o'clock personally. I, I wish I could, that'd be nice. Sometimes I wake up when I don't want to wake up at four. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Um, but he's saying, did I use stated hours? Uh, of pr- of, did I use my hours in the morning for prayer, in the afternoon, for in, or in the evening? If I used every hour, even for spontaneous prayer, like I, I have these uh, uh, you know, scheduled prayers, but I also spontaneous prayer. Uh, number three, have I, or after, that was all under number two, but after and before uh, every deliberate conversation or action that I had, uh, did I consider it for God's glory? Was it for God's glory? He checked his motives. After any pleasure, 
that I received, any grace that I immediately give thanks to God. Do we give thanks to God for all the graces that he gives us throughout the day? Plan business for the day. Did he, did he actually use his time to plan out the different things that he needed to do? And he was quite a visionary. As you read through his biography, he, he had vision to go to Canada. He had vision to go, go out west and even into Ohio outside the colonies. It wasn't America, officially America yet. It was the colonies. And so he, he knew if people were, were going westward and he wanted to go. He's like the Apostle Paul. Hey, I want to get to Spain. He'd been, number six, has he been simple, avoided any luxury, showiness, did he stay aware of God's presence in everything? He'd been zealous in undertaking and active in doing what, it, what good he could. He says, have I been humble and cheerful in everything I said or did? Have I been proud and vain, unclean and enviable of, of, of others in my thought life? Am I aware of my eating and drinking? He would even, he would even like, uh, should I have eaten that? Was that a little too much? Was that excessive? Was that gluttony? He asked these questions because he was preparing for, uh, not only for the Lord's return, but to be used powerfully in the midst of it and waiting. He was, he was watchful. Am I, uh, he says, also, am I aware of my, my discipline uh, in sleep? Have I, have I taken time to be thankful? Have I taken time uh, in diligent study? Have I spoken unkind to anyone? Have I confessed all my sins? And then he'd go to bed. He'd think about that. And I think whether you want to do that or take his for, for yourself, or you want to take uh, Edwards, which they were in the same era in the mid-1700s, the 70 resolves, whatever it is, but you got to have something, something to evaluate your life. Am I being, am I watchful? Um, and I love the fact that Jesus didn't say no, but he said watch and obey and I think that's interesting because the whole church today, and I'm talking about the big C church, is so controversial over the end times. And Jesus is yet being so practical, isn't he? What did he say? Run. When it gets, when it gets dangerous, when it gets crazy, run. And when you're waiting for my return, be watchful and be a good steward of this household because I'm going to ask you exactly what you did to use my, my gifts, my tools for my glory. It's very practical, isn't it? He also said, be watchful, be alert, be alert. It's kind of the same thing. Just gives me an excuse to give you a couple more things. Life is short. It's temporary. Uh, There's a couple of scriptures here that I think would be good to meditate on the end. Second Peter 3, all of it, I think would be good for you. First John 2, uh, you know, the the, the devil, uh, the flesh, the world, the, the, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, those things will, will, will keep you trapped into bondage. As, as your neighbor waits for the Lord, you're so occupied with your life and, and this is not to navel gaze at all. This is not to, but you know, uh, if you're, some, some people are entrenched in, in sin and bondage and, and they, they can't joyously wait for the, for the coming of Christ. And Jesus wants you to be free so that you can enjoy the, at the thought of his coming, that you want to be with him. Here's some practicals even in that. There's four, four things. You know, salvation is free, but discipleship costs you everything. There's some things you need to, you need to count the cost. Luke 14, you need to count the cost in these four areas. You need to relinquish your pride. Just give you something to kind of jog your mind, maybe to take into discipleship. You need to relinquish your pride. You need to recognize your need for Christ and that you're a poor sinner. 
You know, I, I remember like some teachers in the past saying, stop calling yourself a sinner. You're a saint. You're a saint. You're a saint. You're a saint. And it just, they drilled that in. And this is kind of like identity talk. You know, it's like, like this big identity. It's a lot of times you see it in the charismatic movement or you see it, see it in, in the mega church or the pragmatic churches. They're very much like, no, you're, you're, you're a saint and you're a child. And you are. There, you, you are a child of God. You are a saint. And you do need to recognize that. You, that, you, that you are going to be you not only were saved, but you're being saved and you will be saved in the end and glorified. That's a wonderful thought and, that, and you need to, but sometimes at the expense though of recognizing that you're still a sinner and there's still a need every day to get on your knees and say, God, help me in my sin. Help me in my pride. Help me to be humble. Help me to recognize my dependence on you. And number two, repent of your sins. Put them away. Have no pet sin. Have no sin that you're saying, okay, God could touch everything else here. He could take everything else but this one because this is the one that ultimately gives me comfort. Do you have a pet sin? Do you have one that you, you just feed ever so slightly? Just little by little, you water it ever so often to keep it alive? Or do you like John Owen, you mortify the flesh, you mortify sin, you kill sin, and you kill it ever, ever so often, every day, every moment. Crucify it, fight it. The, the born again Christian fights. Number three, reject the easy life. Reject the easy life, be diligent to work hard, don't be lazy. Look at Second Thessalonians 3, six to 15, they abandoned work because they thought it was unspiritual. And then they needed to be disciplined for that. And they were, they were uh, getting involved in other people's affairs, you know, and, and just kind of wasting their life. And Paul's like, don't do that. You have a life that you're going to show. You, you, it's going to, you know, 1 Corinthians 3, you're going to, he's going to inspect everything. Live in light of his return, church. That's how the people of old did. And the question for you is, how will you spend tomorrow if you knew he was coming back that evening? Number four, we need to resolve to be persecuted. We need to resolve that we will be opposed by this world. The godly one will be persecuted. Second Timothy 3, 12. We will be persecuted. Even to live a godly life, let alone just opening our mouth up in an evangelistic context. You'll be hated. J.C. Ryle, he says that um, for those who, you know, some of us in this room need to be encouraged. There's some of us in this room that need to, to, uh, to you know, we'll get to the encouragement. We'll, let, we'll, we'll land on that. But, I, but one of the things he, as I was reading through one of his books, he said, you may know the things of God, but not be rooted and grounded in your faith. I would say, to, I was just talking to the teenagers in this room, or if you're gonna listen to this online later, whatever, are you just holding on to the coattails of your parents' faith? Are you just assuming that you're saved because your parents are? Are you really rooted and grounded in Christ? It's a terrifying thought, actually, to just assume that you're a believer because your parents asked you to be saved or to be baptized or to go to church? Did you pick up this knowledge secondhand or is it yours? 
Is this your faith? Did you you just profess Christ under some sort of pressure because of a song, because of a a feeling? Did you feel like the need? Okay, oh yeah, I guess I will. I I, I feel guilty enough that I have to. You you can feel guilty enough that you just give your life to Christ because you kind of feel bad. You just don't want to feel like left out in a way, but not have genuine faith, not have real faith. You could be like in the four soils in Matthew or the first, at least the first three, listen and, and never pay attention and never and totally forget the message that was, was spoken. You can walk out of those doors and say, hey, what are we going to lunch? And just totally forget. And Monday morning comes, if you even forgot that you're even sitting in this chair. Or you could be one, once the persecution comes, once the heat comes, once it's a little difficult for you, you're like, man, I, I'm done. I'm going back to the world, man. It's so much more comforting. It's the same thing in, 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 verse, in uh, the, the third soil where the pleasures of this world, you get the paycheck, you finally get the job, you get the girl, you get the house, you get everything, everything's comfortable, it's awesome. It's like, forget Christ, man. This, I mean, this is so much better. And then totally even lose track of Christ's return, let alone just living for him, just every day walking with him. Does your face co- faith cost you Anything? Does it cost you anything to sit in this chair? Does it cost you anything to name the name of Christ? You need to be thinking about that. As I was reading, uh, as we kind of close here, as I was reading um, Whitfield's biography, it's a phenomenal biography, 1,200-page biography of his life and the life during the 1800s. It was I don't know if you know this, but Benjamin Franklin in America, in Philadelphia, in Whitfield, were were good friends. And they would send letters to one another, but I love Whitfield's heart is, you know, as as Ben Franklin was discovering electricity and, you know, his, his, he penned the, and signed the Declaration of Independence. And, you know, he was, he was a part of the, uh, the political world there, but also on the front end of, of, uh, of, of technology as we call it today. And, uh, and Whitfield would write to him and saying that uh, you might be working on electricity, but if you don't have light, if you don't have the light, you'll always be in darkness. And he would just, he would, he would, re- he would write these letters and, and it would just be like, wow, this is awesome. I mean, we get to, we get to have these letters and to see how, how Whitfield would always share the gospel. I mean, and, and, and uh, they would go back and forth. In fact, even Ben Franklin would, would talk to him and say, you know, hey, things are getting a little hairy here in, in America. The Redcoats are here. England is bringing their soldiers. This is around, um, around, around 17, like 60-something or so. And, uh, you know, of course, 1776, we've become a nation. And so Whitfield dies at 1770, just six years shy he died in America. He took 17 trips across the, or I'm sorry, 13 trips across the Atlantic, and he should have taken that 14th back to England, although he loved America. He died in America. He died uh, under, he, his, his tomb is actually, I want to go see it sometime. His tomb is underneath uh, the pulpit where he preached in a dead church in New England. So sad. But, uh, but yeah, nonetheless, he died in, uh, in, in Connecticut, I'm sorry, Massachusetts. And uh, he was um, an incredible, sp- spoke to, they say, up to millions of people in his lifetime, the gospel. Uh, 30,000 people at one time. Ben- Benjamin Franklin, just, he wasn't a Christian, but he just, he loved to hear him. And he loved the fact that a lot of times these, these 
preachers would get up there and they would preach to thousands of people just to take their money. And he would go to, he would go to listen to him. He's like, I got, he, he would come and he had, obviously had a lot of money. But he's like, I'm not giving one dime to that man. I'm not giving anything to him. I mean, nothing. And, and, uh, and he was listening to Whitfield. He was taking an offering for, uh, for his orphan house down in Savannah, Georgia, which is, is still, you know, you could go to the place today. I mean, not the orphanage, but you can, I mean, the city still exists today, Bethsaida. And he's got the, the uh, ben, uh, Benjamin Franklin has all this change in his, in his pocket. And he was listening to Whitfield and he's like, I, I couldn't help it, but, but to throw the silver in there. And then I, I couldn't help but to throw a little bit more. And then I realized I just threw all my gold and every silver and everything that I possibly had because the man was so convincing. He just had a way of, of, of pulling people in to, to, to vision to what God was doing in the earth and the gospel, of course, into Jesus Christ. And, and he, he died uh, in 1770 and it took three months for Benjamin Franklin to finally get wind of the fact that this man died. And he says, I knew him intimately. In one of his letters, he wrote to one of his friends, for 30 years, I knew him. His integrity, his zeal, his every good work, never seen unequaled. And I shall never see excelled. And probably he's right. But listen to this sad quote at the end here, what he said. He said, Whitfield used to pray for my conversion but never had the satisfaction of believing that his prayers were heard. How could you be that close to the fire and not be saved? Friends, it's hard to be saved. This is a narrow road and you must be born again. That is a miracle from God. If I've ever saw witness to the miracle of God, in, 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 as I read in the 1,200 pages of Whitfield's biography, it is a miracle that we're saved. This man believed the five tenets of Calvinism, but he had fire underneath him, vision and passion to preach God's word. What a wonderful you can, he, he could, he give, he given vision to all of us that you could have reformed doctrine and have fire for evangelism to go all around the world to preach his word, to preach the gospel in the nations. I hope you're inspired this morning to do those things. But even more than that, I hope you're born again. And that's one of the things he kept, in all his messages is, is he would preach. He'd say, come, come, come to Christ. He's everything. He's what you need. You need forgiveness. Your family needs forgiveness. You need forgiveness from your sin. Come to him. He wants to wipe your slate clean. you often feel your heart faint, right? We all do. Are sorely tempted to give up in despair. Your enemies seem so many. 
You're besetting sin so strong, isn't that true? We all feel this way. Your friends are so few. The way so steep and narrow, you hardly know what to do. But still I say, persevere and press on. The time is very short. A few more years of watching and praying. A few more tossings on the sea of this world. A few more deaths and changes. A few more winters and summers and it'll all be over. We shall have fought our last battle and shall need to fight no more. The presence and the company of Christ will make amends for all we suffer here below. When we see as we have been seen and look back on the journey of life, we shall wonder at our own faintness of heart. We shall marvel that we made so much of our cross, thought so little of our crown. Like Baxter last week, think about heaven more often and it'll strengthen your bones. We shall marvel that in counting the cost, we could never doubt on which side of the balance of profit lay. Let us take courage. We are not far from home, church. It may cost much to be a true Christian and a constant, consistent believer, but it sure pays. It will pay. We will receive that crown if we persevere to the end. Father, we thank you you've given us incredible hope this morning, both for the unbeliever that needs to be saved and for the believer that needs to persevere. And we thank you for your word that again and again is right, is exactly the daily bread that we need. We need your word. Would you impress it deep into our hearts? May we be fourth soil Christians bearing fruit all the way to the end, being watchful, being alert, being ever persevering so that we might endure to the end and your promises, those who endure to the end, Matthew 24, uh, will be saved. And we thank you, Lord, that it is both a command and a promise that those who persevere will be saved, but you also promise that that those who, who you save, no one will be able to snatch them out of your hands and you'll no wise cast out. And we thank you, Lord, that there is a promise for us that those that you save will glorify.